Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and to study. We ask you to guide and lead us and show us what you would want us to see through the journeys of Paul and on the second uh, missionary journey. And we ask you to guide and show us and your spirit to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 16, we're going to be starting at verse 9. We've been uh, looking at the second journey. We looked at Paul meeting Timothy. We looked a little bit at the other history that we know from the book of Timothy, who his mother and grandmother are. Uh, Timothy was a half-Jew, born of a Greek father and Jewish mother. Uh, wasn't, wasn't circumcised, but because he was Jewish, Paul had him circumcised when they got together. And Timothy had a very powerful reputation with the people and how well he could handle the word of God and understood things. All right, so in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we encountered to go, endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to the, preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothrakia, and the next day to Neapolis, and thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in the city abiding certain days, and on the Sabbath day we went in out of the city by a, by a riverside, where prayer was, was wont to be made, and we sat down and spoke unto the women which resorted there. To there. All right, so we're looking at this, and remember there's been times where Paul has been trying to go east. Everywhere he's going, he's been trying to go east, and God says, God is forbidding me to go into Asia, which we talked about, East would have taken him out into the wilderness, what would be considered the wilderness area where the uh, barbarians were. It was no, you know, out from where it was civilized. Paul wanted to go out to evangelize people that were not in the civilized part of the world. Um, now they've been in Troas, and Paul gets a vision, and God sends him a vision of a man from Macedonia, and I'm sure everybody knows exactly where Macedonia is. Macedonia is the northern part of Greece, the northeastern part of Greece. And it is a region that, uh, that is there. And this man says, come. And Paul immediately accepts that this is a vision from God. Now, I have heard many people who have visions from God and see very clear visions from God, even in our day and age. I have never had one that clear. All right? Paul has a vision. Peter had a vision when Cornelius came to him. He had that vision of the sheep coming down. Uh, God says, take and eat. And he goes, I've never eaten anything unclean and all, that's, all that. Uh, we've seen very clearly that God speaks clearly at times. So I don't rule that out. But just because God has certain people in the scriptures that he's done that is not the only way he communicates with us. And this is the thing we keep bringing out. The scriptures have a lot of information in it. And then things look exciting. Right? Even, even when we're on these, these trips, you know, we read a book of Acts and it seems like they hit some place and the next thing you know they're going to the next place. And the next thing We read Paul's letters and we find out I spent three, you know, two years here, three years here, you know, there were times when 
even though it looks exciting in the summary of Acts, it was just all the high points were given in Acts and there was lots of time in between. And the reason I bring that up is so many people will read something like this and they'll go, I want a life of excitement like Paul had. Yeah, Paul had a very exciting life at certain times. But he also had a lot of just serving God times where he just would do a normal everyday routines and we see this all through the scripture. People go, I want, I want to be like Abraham. Well, Abraham was the same way. We, he, we've got a period of 30 years of his life all crammed into eight chapters. You know, so there's all kinds of places where people just did normal living. You know, I've had people go, I want to be like a Daniel. All right, wonderful. We have the start of Daniel. He's taken away captive at around age 15 or 17, somewhere in that area. And the rest of the book of Daniel, basically the first five chapters of Daniel, because it's all prophecy after that, those first five chapters cover Daniel's life from 17 to 80. Yeah, he went in the lion's den, he, he interpreted the you know, visions and got promoted, but what happened in between those four or five events of his life that we have recorded? Long, boring pe periods of time where he just did day-to-day -day work and did his opening devotion, studied the Word of God, went to work, came back home, prayed again, you know, just the same things that we do. We need to be able to recognize when God moves, recognize it and remember those times so that we can be able to get through all those times when it is just got up in the morning, did my devotions, went to work, you know, went to church, got up the next morning, did my devotions, went to work, did my, you know, and just the boring day-to-day -day life. And we want to keep that in mind as we go through all of this. So Paul is getting this vision of going to Macedonia and then in verse 10 it says, after he had seen the vision, immediately we encountered in, uh, endeavored to go to Macedonia. This is the first place where Luke, who is the writer of this book, starts using we and us. So somewhere in this Troas, Ly Lystra, Derby area, uh, Luke was picked up. Because now in, he, he's starting to write in the first person rather than the third person. So all previous to this, the whole book of the Gospel of Luke is all in the third person because he's taken reports of what happened. Up till this point, halfway through the book of Acts, he's talking about the third person because he's telling the story of what had happened. From this point on, you're going to start seeing the we and us that Luke is with him in this endeavor. Now, how did Luke get picked up by Paul? We don't know. Nowhere are we told how a doctor starts going around with Paul. Uh, because these doctors would have been hired by families. You know, this is how they, they were usually a slave hired by a family. And it could be that some family in that area got saved and said, Paul needs, Paul needs a doctor around him with all the beatings he's taken, all the, all the trouble he has. We're going to send a doctor with him. Uh, we don't know. We really don't know how this happened. But all of a sudden we see this transition that Luke is now a member of the missionary team. And Luke, from this point on, is going to be with Paul. Uh, during most of his writers, he says, all this with me is, is Luke. All this with me is, you know, very few people. But Luke is now going to be a key individual behind the scenes of all of this. 
so just bring that out as you, as you look at this. And it says, they assuredly gathered to, that the Lord had called them to preach the gospel. So they have decided this vision is from God. And I'm not ever going to rule out, if somebody says that they had a vision from God and it's giving something that is not contrary to the scripture, I'm not going to rule out that it is God speaking to somebody. Who am I to tell anybody that God spoke to them or not? Uh, I've not had it. I've only had one occasion where I really felt like God actually spoke to me in an audible, audible way, and it really didn't have much to do with a vision. But it's also had many times when I know that it's something came from God because you get to know him and you know when he's speaking. And in this case, I think God had to make a pretty clear case to Paul that you're going to Macedonia. Quit trying to go to Asia. <laughs> you're going, I'm sending you to Macedonia. I'm, I'm sending you deeper into the civilized Roman Empire, not out of the Roman Empire. And so he and they decide that it's time to go preach them. And then it says, therefore, loosing from Troas. Now, this word for loosing literally means to launch out in a boat. All right. So if you look where Troas is, it's up there in the northwest part of the Asia Minor, and they're going to go straight over to Philippi, basically. So they got on a boat and took a two-day trip to, to get into Macedonia. Otherwise, it would have taken them a long time to get there. Uh, it, and even at that, some place, they would have had to get on a boat to cross the, the Sea of, uh, what is that sea? The Sea of Miramar. <laughs> The Sea of Seas, wow. <laughs> uh, to get into that whole area. So they get into the boat, they make their trip, and they end up in these cities that I had trouble reading the first time, so I'm not reading them again. <laughs> but if you look on your map, they're right, across, they're right there on the border. <laughs> right there on the border of tra Trace. <laughs> uh, and end up going to Philippi. And lots of things are going to happen in Philippi. Philippi is, is a big church that started there. And the Philippian jailer we're going to meet in a little bit. Paul writes a letter to the Philippians. Lots of things happen in Philippi. Um, so they make it into Philippi, which is a chief city in Macedonia and a colony. Now, I'm not sure if you all understand. When they put a colony in there, this means it is a Roman city. And this city, Philippi, is, is named after one of the Caesars, and, and it is a place where they have established an outpost. It is a very Roman city in the middle of a non-Roman area. All right? And colonies have high esteem, even though they're not Roman citizens by, by decree or birth, they would have people who had bought their citizenship. And this is going to, we're going to see this at various times. You know, Paul is a born citizen of Rome, and he's going to take advantage of that. Most of the Romans, if you weren't born Roman and you made enough money, you could buy your citizenship. And you could pay enough money and say, I want to buy my Roman citizenship and and we're going to see at least one, there is one place, and I can't remember where, but in the, one place in the scripture where, goes, where somebody's talking to Paul and go, I had to spend so much for my, my citizenship, how much did it cost you? And Paul said, I'm born. All right, I'm born a citizen, which had a higher level than the guys who had to buy their citizenship. 
And this is something that was very important in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was extremely prejudiced and had many, many layers of citizens and peoples. You started out with the Romans, people who were born Romans, they were Roman citizens by birth. They were true Italians. <laughs> you had the rest of them that could, you know, that were Roman citizens who could have bought their Roman citizenship or earned it. Many times the military men would earn a citizenship by service in the army. And that was the second level. They were better than everybody else, but lower than the, Roman, the Romans from Italian, Italian birth. And then you had varying levels of slaves. Because <laughs> everybody was either Roman or slave. And you had all kinds of different levels within, within that. And they made what we go through in, in Europe and America look like we don't have any prejudice at all or any kind of splitting up because of the way they split up. But it's also the same thing when we talk about the Jews. The Jews were you were either a Jew or you weren't. They had it pretty simple. You know, you're a Jew by birth, you're a proselyte, or you're a nobody. You know, you were a Gentile. So the world has had prejudice all along, but prejudice has usually not been by color the way it is in America. It was by nationality or lack of nationality. And this is where we are in Rome. Greece was the same way. Greece had the same tier, except you were Greek or other. And we're going to see this is going to be a problem at times, you know, that they're going to face. So, a proselyte's a convert. Uh, a proselyte's a convert. Yeah. We even talk about, uh, in Muslim world, it is a capital offense to, to create, uh, to proselyte from Muslims to anything else. Now they can proselyte to anywhere into Muslim, but it's a capital offense if you convert a Muslim to some other religion in most in most Muslim world. But that's what proselyte means to change. Oh, they go after the person that got converted as well, but but they would make sure that the person who converts them is not going to convert another Muslim uh, if they can help it. <laughs> Uh, doesn't stop it, but it happens. All right, so they, they end up in Philippi, which is a colony, which just means it's a chief city. It's a Roman city. It would have a uh, Roman offices and government offices and appointed officers and quite possibly even a Roman, Roman leader because it's a colony. And it's not a military leader. It'd be more of a political leader. Jerusalem had Roman military leaders overseeing them in government and weren't considered colonies. Uh, but these would have people assigned out of the Senate doing bureaucracy. They would be where you, uh, they would be satellite, op kind of satellite offices of, of Rome uh, where you could do federal, federal work. Uh, so colonies were very special and they weren't, they weren't numerous, but they were scattered all over the place. So Philippi was a chief city of Rome. And so this is a very important one. It's going to have trade routes. It's going to have traffic. It's going to have all kinds of things. 
And as you study the maps in the time of this time, most of the places Paul has gone, most of the churches that were established were on the trade roads and popular cities. And then from those cities, they scattered outward off the main routes. Uh, it would be very much for us Route 66 before the highways. You know, all the cities along Route 66, or you go back far enough to the, to the stagecoaches where, where the water was and the stagecoaches ran, you eventually got cities and towns built up. These are the towns that we're talking about in the scriptures. They were built up because of something important. Some business was developed there, some road was developed there, a road went through it to went someplace else, or it was a port. This is, this is Philippi. Philippi is one of these big, important places. And it says they were there abiding certain days, which means they were there. I like the way they just put certain days. They, they don't tell you we were there for, for three months, two months, two years, five years. Uh, we were just there. We were there for a period of time. Uh, and verse 13 says, And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a river where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spoke unto the women which were uh, resorted there. It's kind of an interesting thing. Philippi apparently did not have a synagogue by the way that they're writing this up. Otherwise, Paul would have gone to the synagogue to preach. So they go out to the city, out of the city, by the river, and there are people gathering together for prayer. Uh, no synagogue, so you're not going to have the whole process. But you know what really surprises me when I read that? Women. And Paul and his group talked to the women. So we're seeing that Christianity is already having an effect on Paul and on, on his, because Paul's a Pharisee. Paul would have had that attitude, these are women, you don't talk to women. Now he's not alone, so it's not wrong for him to do what he's doing. But Paul would have never gone out by himself and talked to a bunch of women. Now, this is one of those things that Christianity has changed the opinion and the status of women over the years. And even to this day, where Christianity reigns, women have more freedom than where it doesn't reign. You go to a Muslim world, you go to places where Christianity has not been popularized, and women still have little to no rights. And in Jesus' day, they didn't have much better. They were considered property. And Paul's out there talking to the women. Now, and I'm sure there had to be some men somewhere in that, in that whole thing, but Paul's out there talking primarily to women. And it, and it strikes me very harsh, hard because I know the, the routine. You know, and this is the whole thing. We look at who did Jesus reveal that he had risen to first? women. How many women did he talk to and get named in the New Testament? A whole bunch of them are named in the New Testament. He talked with them. He ministered to them. Uh, he did not treat them you know, as, as property. Paul is beginning to see this as well. And we are able to see what is going on here as he's going out and going to teach. And this we is at least Paul and Luke, and I'm assuming that Silas and Timothy went with him because Timothy's been taken with him. So probably the four of them at least, if not more in their group, because we don't, 
We're never really told how large a group is doing this missionary trip with Paul. Uh, we know that you've got uh, Silas, you've got uh, Paul, you get, you're getting Timothy, um, and we don't know how many others would have been. Now, now we've gathered Luke with them. Uh, did Luke have a helper to be able to run around and, and, and get his herbs and stuff? We don't know. Uh, we, and this is one thing we th- see in the Bible. So many times it says, so-and-so went. Now, we're in Kings and Chronicles, and it says the king went someplace. Well, the one thing we know that when the king goes someplace, he did not go by himself. At the very least, he had his bodyguard with him. He probably had a servant or two with him to take care of take care of his needs because the king couldn't put his boots on, couldn't put his armor on, couldn't do anything without help. Uh, so we know that when it says, so, you know, so-and-so went someplace, oftentimes there was an entire entourage that went with him. This is why we talked this morning. When Jesus went places, he didn't just, it wasn't just him. It wasn't just him and the 12 disciples. It was him and a whole slew of people. Now, we know that there was about 500 that followed him everywhere, and then he'd gather up places and thousands of people would show up when he got there. So we look at this process, and it says Jesus slipped away sometimes. Can you imagine if everywhere you went there's 500 people with you? I'd want to slip away too once in a while, uh, you know, because I'm a loner to begin with, so I, could, I couldn't handle having 500 people around me all the time. I don't know that I could handle having 12 people around me all the time, so, uh, you know, but we think about this. These things are just the most important details to, told to us. But there's a group of them going down to where the prayers are at. And what do they find? A group of ladies. <laughs> and they start speaking to them and talking to them, which again is showing us how far Paul has come. Because in Jewish uh, territory, the women are so low on the ladder that they can't even give a testimony in court. You know, that's, you know, that's how low they are on the official ladder. Now, they, they rule at home most likely. Uh, you know, wives have always had impact on their husbands and on their families. But officially, they did not have any standing. And now Paul's talking to ladies. And we're going to find out that he's going to end up talking to a very important lady. Verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she intended unto the things which were spoken unto Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and abide there. And she constrained us. All right, Lydia. is Somebody they meet. Lydia, the seller of purple. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but purple cloth in that day and age was very, very expensive. It was not easy to dye purple. The ones who wore purple were royalty, and people of great importance would wear purple, partially because of its high cost. And she is a seller of this, uh, of this material. And if we, it's obtained uh, from... From shells, it was a very profitable business because you took your linen, and the hardest part was getting the dye. That was red. Yep, the crocus worms were red when crushed. Uh, 
and we talked about them at various times a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but this is a purple color, not red, but the, the royal purple. All right? Very, when it's dark, it was, the darker it was, the more valuable it was to them. And she sold this so much so that she's going to take them. They're in Philippi. She's from Thyatira. She's got two houses at least. So she is very wealthy. And uh, she listens to Paul. She already worships God. Now, it doesn't say she's a Christian at this point, but she's worshiping God, which probably means she's a Jew or, or leaning toward Judaism and the worship of God. And her heart was tender to the message that Paul was giving. And it says that she attended to what Paul said. And that means to carefully listen. And this is wonderful. When you see somebody, when you, especially if you're a teacher, or, and I don't know how many of you have taught, but when you're teaching and somebody is very carefully attending to what you say, it's very encouraging. Now, if they're busy looking at the moon and the sun and, the, and out the window and their watch and everything, it's like, okay, hopefully they're hearing something. And I've learned, I've learned to not judge by what I see. Uh, and I've told the story. I was teaching the youth one time at a, at a church and one of the kids was laid back. He would have swore that he was asleep and not paying attention. And I talked with his dad the next day, and he goes, man, my son couldn't stop talking about what you were talking about. I'm going, I told him, if I had picked anybody who wasn't listening, your son would have been the one that I said wasn't listening. So you never know what's being said, but if somebody's paying attention, they're taking notes, they're, they have rapt attention, it's at least encouraging. You feel like you're doing something, something out of this. That was what she was doing. She was looking at Paul and saying, now I'm hearing what I need to hear. Paul giving a message about grace. You know, and this is the good news of Christianity. It's all about grace. I don't have to earn anything. I can't earn it. It's all God reaching. He did all the work. He, did, he, he called me. He paid for my debt. He calls me. He... He baptizes me. He strengthens me. He changes me. He clothes me in the righteousness of Christ. He adopts me. You know, and you if you're his. <laughs> no, just me. <laughs> you know, he does all the work for Christianity. This is the message that Paul's delivering to these, to these people. They're used to the Jewish message. What's the Jewish message? Well, if you're a male, you, you turn to him. You, you uh, get circumcised. You get baptized. And you agree to follow all the laws. And when we say all the laws, there's only, 300, uh, only 613 of them for you to keep. And if you mess up on any one of them, you're a bad, you're a bad Jew. And every, every Jew was a bad Jew. Because they messed up on the laws all the time. Because nobody could keep all the law. Nobody could keep even the Ten Commandments. Much less the other 603 laws. The good news of Christianity is... I serve God who does everything. And he strengthens me to do the work. You know, what a, what, a, what a deal. And then he rewards us when he does the work. He gives us a reward, eternal reward in heaven. I like God's deal. You know, he does everything and I get, I get, I get uh, the rewards. You know, which is what the world is always looking for. You know, give me a job where I do nothing and I get a big paycheck. 
And yet that's exactly what God does. If we're open to him, he says, I'm just going to use you. I'll do everything and I'll, I'll reward you for eternity. And this is the message that Paul's giving. Grace to these people who are used to hearing nothing but law and legalism. And they're going to, and she's going to respond, and it's kind of interesting. It says, and when she was baptized and her household, she got saved and her household got saved. And then she basically had said to Paul, if you are finding me faithful, come and stay at my house. They're in Philippi. She's from Thyatira. And she says, come and stay. She's wealthy enough to be able to provide for them. She's going to give them a roof, which means one thing when you went to stay at somebody's house back in those days, they took care of you. You were fed, you were clothed, you, know, you, you were taken care of. Uh, and it was that way for a long time. Uh, you know, I, it's kind of bad in America. You go to somebody's house and it's like they can't wait to get you out and close the door on you on your way out the door. You know, uh, it used to be that you would actually be walked out, you know, say goodbye, have a good day, you know, uh, it was a pleasure having you, but in many times in America, it's like, uh, don't let the door hit you as you're walking out, you know, and you're kind of like, bye, see you, you know, <laughs> but uh, in this day, it's, she's saying, I want to be able to take care of your needs. She had just gotten the best gift she's ever going to have with, the, with salvation, her family is saved, and she's wealthy enough to say, I'm going to take care of you. And we're going to find out that Lydia is known later on. <laughs> she doesn't just disappear after this. Uh, so this is something that is very important. Paul has touched somebody who's now going to touch and repay back. And when he's doing this witnessing, I'm sure he did not realize what, you know, who he was leading to Christ. And this is something that is very important for us. When we serve God, sometimes we get blessings in return that we never, ever expected. Where somebody says, well, I'm being touched so much, I'm going to give, or I'm going to do, or I'm going to help you with this. And we don't do it to get, but it is not a bad thing when we do get. And so we serve. I've had cars, at least two cars over the over my 30, or last 30 years given to me. You know, just because I needed them. You know, talking to God, God, I need a car. Now, they weren't always the car that I would have gone out and bought, but they were good cars. And so, how does God reward his children? Richly, if we allow him to. Because he is wanting, and this person has the money to be able to help them. She's given them a roof over their head, so there's no, no inn being paid. They're, they're going to have meals. They've got a place to go each night. They're not having to camp outside the city or, or pay for an inn. And they're coming to a place to a woman who has money. She is a business person in a very high-end business. This would, the stuff she sold was in the luxury end of things. It wasn't, it wasn't the Walmart or the Target you know, or the dollar store. <laughs> you know, you know, it wasn't the dollar store or the Walmart or the Target. It was... She's up at the high end. She's Rodeo Drive, <laughs> you, know, you know, or whatever the business area in, in New, York, New York would be. You know, she is that level. She's not, she's not where everybody goes, so she's got the, the top-end clientele 
charging top dollar. So she's making, making the money. And this is who is now saying, come. Come stay at my place. Use my home as your center. And this is very important because where did churches meet during those days? They met in the homes. And so you almost had to have somebody wealthy to have a home big enough to have a church. Uh, you didn't go to somebody whose little house had a, had a living room and, uh, and one room off to the side. Uh, you needed a place where you could actually put a crowd that Paul was going to draw. Right? And Paul had large crowds come. You know, you, and you think again, when Jesus met. How many times you read in the scriptures where Jesus went to dinner and the next thing you know there's a crowd. Can you imagine inviting Jesus to dinner? That was going to be a big enough crowd. You're getting Jesus and 12 other guys, minimum, plus everybody you invited. And as soon as everybody found out where he, where he was at, your house was surrounded. Now, not that you had to feed them or anything, but they were there to listen to everything that they could hear. I can picture them at the windows. You know, you know, you got a window there, and there's eight people stick their heads, sticking their heads in the window. You know, at the doorway, there's a gaggle of people at the doorway and Jesus is there we're going to listen to him now, and everywhere he went there's this huge crowd that comes in Paul wasn't far from that this is, this is the man of God who's talking about the Christ who's leading people to the Lord crowds are gathering where, wherever he goes especially the longer he stays there and gets a reputation and even in today's world there are certain people that if they go someplace a crowd gathers now you know, I'm not too enthused about those type of people, but it happens. Uh, there's all kinds of different meetings where they say, and so-and-so is speaking, get your tickets. And that really bothers me that they're using God's gift to, to sell tickets, but that's between them and God. Uh, I won't go pay for a ticket to go so, to see somebody like that, but you know, if they give them away free, might, but I don't like crowds, so I probably still wouldn't go. Uh, but... All of this, she is now saying, I am ready now to be your patron. I'm going to help you at this point. So verse 16, And it came to pass, as we went to pray, a certain damsel, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And the same followed Paul and us, crying and saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which, which show us the way to salvation. And this did she many days... But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that same hour. Now, this is kind of a funny story in one sense. They're going around the city trying to teach people about Jesus. And this woman, damsel, girl, whatever, she's possessed by a spirit. And that spirit walks around yelling, these are the servants of the Most High God. And you might think, well, that's a pretty good thing. You're being recognized by, by, by demons. But I can guarantee that what was happening was this demon was crying out at all the wrong times. In the middle of Paul's message or conversion, they would scream out, these are the servants of the Most High God. You know, and he's walking to the next person, these are the servants of the Most High God. <laughs> and all the wrong times. And this is something that is a tool of Satan all in, in activity. If you ever go on and do street evangelism and you're talking to two or three people, inevitably, one of the three or two of the three will be interested in the gospel message and at least one or two will not be. 
And Satan will use the one who's not interested to try to get the message stopped. Which is why if you do street evangelism, it's a very good idea to have at least two people. Many times my job was to engage the guy that wanted to be an idiot and not listen and just keep him busy. Argue with him, debate with him, whatever. Just talk with him. It didn't matter as long as he didn't get to bother the one who wanted to listen. And that's a very important. And this demon would have been wandering around every time somebody was interested. Every time there was going to be a good point. These are the servants of the Most High God. They're, going to, they're coming to lead, you to lead you to the way of salvation. Paul, and it says, Paul was patient, it says, for many days. <laughs> now, we don't know how many days were many. But he put up with it. Many, I'm going to say, would be at least three or four at least. Maybe longer. And then Paul got angry one, one day. And he cast this demon out of this girl. Now, why he didn't cast the demon out earlier, I don't know. Uh, maybe it took him that long to realize that this was a demon you know, that was speaking this thing and not just an obnoxious person. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But after many days, he cast the demon out. And it left, left her. Now, the thing to note is, and it was in this little parentheses in verse 16, there was a woman possessed with a spirit of divination that met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Translation, they were getting rich. <laughs> All right? They were getting rich because of whatever that demon could say. Now, the demons do not know the future. Do not ever think that the, the, the demons know the future. But they can also know just about everything there is to know about the past. People will go, well, this person said things to me that nobody else could know. Well, the demonic world has a lot of information system as well as, as, well as anything else. Uh, I almost picture them having a computerized system. Okay, I'm going to go meet so-and-so. What do I need to know about them? <laughs> you know, I'm not saying they do, but I'm just, you know, that's the type of thing. They have access to the information. They know who... They're all your relatives are. They know who all of your, your family is. They know the ones that are going to be the ones that you're going to need. So when they come and meet you in these, if you truly get met by a Susan person who knows, who has a demon, that information is easily available. Now we have tricksters who can make you think that they're giving you information because they ask you just open-ended questions and then, then you answer enough for them to be able to make very shrewd, educated guesses. But the demonic world knows all that it needs to know about us. There's more than around. Huh? No, do they know? Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're very, because we're surrounded. Remember that we, especially as Christians, we're under attack all the time by, by the demonic world. The good news for us is that only one-third of the angels fell. So when you're God's child, there's two angels to every one demon. Now, how many angels we need to protect us, I don't know, but the good news is there's two angels to every demon, you know, because one-third of the angels fell. So we are very much to be protected, which is kind of hard when you think, well, God, you let an awful lot hit us when, you know, when there's two, two angels to protect us. Uh, of course, we get ourselves into trouble a lot on our own. You know, we, we, we don't need demons to help get us in trouble because we have the problem of our own flesh. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life get us in trouble all the time. And then the demonic world can just t tweak it. 
So, and we don't know how many, how many demons there are to begin with. Jesus told Pilate that he could call ten legions of angels to, to help him if he wanted to. That's a large amount of angels. And I don't think that was all of his angels, but he, I think he was trying to impress Pilate about the size because Rome only had 12 legions in the entire, entire army at that time. So he said, I can call 10 right here, right now, to, call, to deliver me. You know, Pilate, how much do you have here? You know, how, much, how much defense do you have? And he just had a few, few cohorts uh, to, to help him. And Jesus is saying, I can, I can get enough to almost, call, you know, I can destroy Rome if I wanted to. So we see this battle going on, and this person has this demons cast out of her. And they've been making lots and lots of money from her which you know that's really going to make the masters very excited that they just lost a lot of money <laughs> potential because now she's sane and in her right mind and can't, can't make them their money because this demon has been pulled out of her. You know, and we look at this, the Bible talks about demonic possessions throughout, throughout scriptures. And we living in America, Europe and everything, we are so scientifically advanced that you know, we don't tend to believe in demonic possessions, but they are still out there. People are still possessed by demons today and need deliverance. And we, if you talk to missionaries or people that have gone overseas to Africa, South America, Asia, they say they find people that are demonically possessed a lot. And I want to be careful how I say this. Much of the psychotic, psychotic episodes we have I believe, are done through demonic, demonic possessions. Not all of them. There are literal chemical imbalances and everything. But a lot of these are demonic. People with multiple personalities, when you read the scriptures, they're multiple personalities, demonic possessions. And I'm not going to say all of them because I'm not going to get in, my trouble, in trouble with the psych, psychologists and I don't believe that all of them are. But I believe that much of what goes on has demonic input on it. And we need to be able to, to see that. We could be able to deliver people from their possessions because these people are, have these demons in them. And if they have demons in them, they're not Christian. We as Christians cannot be possessed by demons because we have the Holy Spirit in us in the first place. And the Holy Spirit is not going to let a demon inhabit the same body. So we as Christians, that doesn't mean that we can't be bothered by demons. You can have a demon sitting on your shoulder and whispering in your ear an awful lot if you want to, want to let him be there. But they cannot be in us, possessing us. We can be oppressed, we can be bothered by them, but we cannot be possessed by them as a Christian. So don't ever get afraid that you're of demons. Uh, we have a power greater in us to, than they are. The devil is a demon. The devil is a demon. It's interchangeable words, at least how I understand them. <laughs> We're not going to go until at the. We'll talk about that after the end of the study. Uh, well, no, that's. It's a good question, but I don't want to cover it at this point because it's a very. Uh, debated question in, in Christian circles, and if I give it, I want to give you both sides of the both sides of the uh, equation. I'm 
I'll tell you what I believe and I'll, I'll tell you what else is said. Um, so she is delivered from the, this demon and it's not going to go well for Paul in this process. Verse 19. And when her master saw that their hope for their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace and to the rulers and brought them to the magistrate saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. All right. These guys got just a little bit angry. <laughs> All right. Uh, they very quickly realized when, whenever she came back, uh, she can't do what she's been doing. We have just lost our income. That's pretty sad when your income all was based on one person being the, being the one that drug people in, but this is where they're at. And they went out from having met with her, finding out that the demon was gone, and I don't know that they knew that she had a demon or not, but they found out she cannot do what she was doing. And they immediately, physically grabbed hold of Paul and Silas and drugged them into the marketplace before the rulers or the, the, court, the courtyard. Now, these guys were vigilantes, which was not uncommon in that day. Uh, so I don't know. It doesn't tell us that they picked up the, the Roman guard to help them. It makes it sound like they went out and did this. They may have had servants that helped them. We don't know what's going on, but they dragged them in and they brought them to the magistrates and they said, these men being Jews. And you know, when I read it the first time, I put that emphasis on being Jews. And they were like, you know, uh, these guys, they're, you know, we're, we're Romans here and we're citizens of a Roman colony, which puts us a little higher than everybody else. These guys, they're Jews. <laughs> you know, uh, so Jews have always been down on the bottom rung of these nations over the years. And even to this day, anti-Semitism is really kicking back up again. Uh, it, they had been free of, of, of persecution for, for about two or three decades, but it is really starting to kick up again around the world, including America, where people are coming against them just because they're Jews. And there's anger and bitterness, and this is what they were saying, these, these men. You know, not these men, but these Jewish guys. <laughs> Uh, so they're playing this race card on them. You know, these, these guys, they're not Romans, they're, they're Jews. They're, they're the scum of the world. They think we're low, we think they're low. And they go, they're exceedingly troubling our city. All they're doing is preaching the gospel of Christ, and yet they keep getting blamed of, for agitating the cities. And, you know, but on one side, it is very much true that we as Christians agitate the lost world because we bring light into darkness. And darkness wants to have darkness. We want to keep, this sinner wants to keep their, their sin hidden. They don't want everybody to see it. They don't want to see people that have truth see it. You know, it's one thing to be at a party where everybody's drinking and 
and drugging and, and, and having sex together. You're all doing the same thing. It's no big deal. But then have somebody with light come in who all they have to do is choose not to do what you're doing and it makes you feel guilty. And so they're coming in, these men. Now, so far, the only trouble they've really done is cast out the demon out of their money-making machine, which is a big deal to them. And they say they're teaching customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. We do not know what they're referring to, and we know that they don't care about the customs that they're being taught. But it could be sim as simply, if it really is something true, these guys are talking about one God. We're Romans. We have an entire pantheon of God. How dare they come in and say there's only one God? And this is a big deal. When Christianity comes into a polytheistic environment, it's a big deal because we come in saying there's one God. There's one way to that God. And that's Jesus Christ. We're having that problem in America who, are, who is becoming more and more polytheistic with each, each, with each decade that passes each year. But we have problems with other religions because they're going, well, they're saying we're not as good as they are. And we're not saying anything about good, but we're just saying there's one way to God. But that is something that has always irritated people. In a polytheistic world, again, we've talked about this. Understanding polytheism is tough for us because we in America have always had a monotheistic mentality. There's one God. Now we're having debate on who that one God is anymore. But in a polytheistic place, you had many, many gods. And we've talked about this. This was a description given to me by a missionary. He goes, you make a trip to town. You leave your house. You pray to your God that protects your house. As you cross your yard, you pray to the God that protects your yard. You get out on the street. You, protect the God, you pray to the God that protects the traveler. As you go across the fields, you, protect to the God, you pray to the God that protects the fields. You get to the forest, you pray to the God that protects the forest. You get to the river that you've got to wade across over the ford, you pray to the God of the rivers that he doesn't sweep you down the river. You know, we laugh at that, but that was serious business to the polytheist. There's a God over every single area, every single place. And all of them were strong in their area of expertise. Which is why you would have a God for your, for your produce, you'd have a God for your, for your family, you'd have a God for your... If you're going to want a family, you'd pray to the God for reproduction. Every God had its power base. And we don't understand that, but this is what's going on when they're bringing Christianity into this polytheistic world. You know, when they were preaching in Jerusalem, they're talking about the same God, but they're talking about the Messiah having come, which is bad enough for the Jewish people. Now they're out there in the, in the polytheistic world saying, uh, your many gods don't aren't what you're needing. And this is the problem when we preach to polytheistic people. They go, okay, well, I can add another god to it. No big deal. I, I have 50 gods already. I'll just add, I'll add one more and have 51 gods. You know, you know if you're a good Hindu, I only have 5,000 gods. I can add one more god. You know, no big deal. And these are what they're saying. These guys are teaching customs and, you know, they don't fit into Roman, Roman tradition. Not that they cared about the Roman tradition at all. They're just saying, we just lost a lot of money, but that's not something you could take them, take them to court for. You know, uh, these guys cost me a lot of money. Uh, big deal. You know, businessmen lose money all the time. So they come up with trumped-up charges. 
And these are the things that happen to Christians all the time, trumped up charges uh, to make it look like we're violating customs or we're doing things that aren't, aren't legal. And it says, a multitude rose up against them and the majesties rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And this beating is not with a flagellum and the word beat here is to beat with rods. So this was kind of a better beating than they would have gotten elsewhere, but being beat by rods is not, not, a, not a comfortable thing either. But it's not with a flagellum at this point, which was the whip that would have literally cut. So they're just being made black and blue and very sore. Now you'll note one other thing here, there is no trial. There was no, no, no case, no trial. Why? Because they said these guys are Jews. These guys are Jews. Jews had no rights, really. They weren't Romans. They were just sitting, they lived in the Roman Empire. And they were the bottom, you know, you talk about, you know, they're below the slaves. You know, they're, you know, they, you know that was, a, the, these men being Jews. And literally, that was a, an, ass, an assault on them. These guys are nothing but Jews. Do anything you want with them. And when they just appeared before the magistrates, the magistrates took that they were Jews. Didn't ask them any questions and just had them beat. Uh, and this is going to end up being a very big problem, which we'll have to talk about next week, but we're going to finish this little section we just read. Uh, and after they were beat, <laughs> with many stripes that were put on them, they were cast into prison, and they charged the jailer to keep them safely. All right, jailer, you keep these guys. You do not lose them. Uh, and the jailer, on receiving that, it says he put them into the inner prison. That would be as far inside the prison as he could get them. Multiple doors between them and the outside. Uh, many times they would just be, you know, shackled on, you know, against the outer wall because they were just minor, you know, minor, minor criminals and nobody really cared. But he's taking them all the way into the deepest cell that he could put them in. Probably a cellar dungeon type cell. Uh, way out of it, many guards between them and the, and the exit, many locked doors between him and, the, and them and the exit. And not only did he put him in the inner prison, but he also put him into fetters or stocks. Uh, the word here is something to do with wood. I don't know that this was the type of stocks we think of as, as medieval stocks or not, but they were chained up somewhere somehow. So he has taken them all the way to the inner prison, and then chain them. Uh, he is going to make sure these guys don't get out. All right. Uh, I have just been instructed by the, by the Roman magistrate, the leaders of this town, to make sure that these guys don't escape. And the one thing about this is the, the jailers were usually hired. And you could get your money from Rome, but you, know, you got your money from Rome and the government, but if you let somebody escape, you took their place. Uh, and in this case, they're, they're looking at a capital crime against them if they could figure it all out. Uh, so he's very worried that if they escape, they're going to kill him. And we're going to find out that this is a big deal to him is when God delivers them. <laughs> but we see here Paul and Silas being arrested. Now, and this is where we're going to stop. And where we look at this, we know that Romans 8.28 is in, in effect. We, you probably know the story of the Philippian jailer and all of this. But, you know, but if you didn't know that story, 
You could be Paul saying, God, how is this going to work out for good? I just got arrested because I cast a demon out of somebody. God, how, how is this going to be for our good? The same place that we would be if we were picked up on the street and thrown into jail and beat. God, how in the world is this any good? How are we going to build a church when you, th when you just threw us into jail? And these guys are mad at us. We don't know what they're going to do. How many times do we have that same attitude as we go forward saying, God, it just doesn't make any sense. I've been there. I've been there myself. There's many times when my prayer has been, God, I know that you work everything out to good, but I don't see any way that this is going to be good. And you know what? God doesn't immediately jump off the chair, throne of heaven to, to come down and whisper in my ear why it's going to be good. He just sits back and says, well, be patient. And given enough time, most of the things I have learned why they were good. But not everything in my life has God showed to me how good is going to come out of it. I may not know how good is going to come out of it until I reach, into, reach heaven and God says, see, this is what, you did this and this is what happened. And the most important thing about that verse, and I've said many times, is there's a word that we like to put in it that's not in that verse. All things work together for good. Most of us want to put in all things work together for my good. That word is not in that verse. <laughs> Many times it's so that others can see our steadfastness as we serve God. And they get ministered to by our steadfastness, our holding to God and then going, oh. And we may not see those, those, those ones until we get to heaven and God says, this person is in heaven because of your steadfastness. This person is in heaven because you held on to me during those hard times. Or they'll come to us themselves. I think, I, I heard somebody preach one time, they, they talked about the idea that you know, people would go to heaven and trade salvation stories and, and share. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that idea. One of the greatest things I like to do, I like to hear how people got saved. What did God do to get people saved? We get to heaven, there's going to be millions, if not billions of people that got saved. We can spend a long time just getting stories. Just getting stories of how God brought somebody to Christ and what he did by getting, bringing them. That could take us a long, that could take us well into eternity with, you know, try, trying to get everybody's story. To get everybody's story. I like that idea because one of the things I love in church is hear how people got saved and how God has used them after they got saved. It's wonderful because it builds up people's faith. And I'm, and I, I'm not going to oppose it. That sounds like a really good thing. You know, all right, God, you got me on the 99th floor of, of, of heaven. I got this entire 1,500 square, mile, you know, uh, square miles to go. I'll go visit them, and then I'll, then I'll hit the next floor. Maybe, maybe I'll be in the basement and have to work my way up there. I don't know. But you, know, but you get the point. You know, we've got all kinds of people we're going to be able to talk to in heaven and listen to what God has done. How did God save you? What did God do to bring you to him? I love to hear people's stories. I love that God was working on me and I was seeking after him, going to church as early as possible. You know, when my, nobody in my family went to church, I was walking to church. Five, six years old, I'd be walking to church to find a church. Went down Bible, uh, when I came back to the States, went on the church buses to go to church. Now my family probably loved it. They had one less child to take care of during the during for two hours, three hours when I was away. 
but I was hearing the word of God and finally got saved recognizing I was a sinner and then started listening to Christian radio and the Christian kids shows and got into Bible studies started learning about God and probably the second best greatest day of, of my Christian life was when my dad got saved two years later and now I could start going to church more than just Sunday morning and I was one of those crazy kids that wanted to go to church you know but what is the story that you have? You know, learn to be able to be able to share your story. How did you how did you get drawn to Christ? What changed in your life when you got when you got saved? God got hold of me and took away a very vicious temper that I had. I was always in fights before I was saved. Always. And I was always fighting and winning. <laughs> but what has God done to bring you to him? Do you know how to share that with others? You know, you know, get it down to where you can tell people your story. It's very important to be able to tell people your story because that is what you can be used more than anything else. Because nobody can tell you your story didn't happen to you. Nobody can tell me that I didn't go to church long before anybody in my family got saved. And that I, that I got saved and I got changed the day I got saved. They may not believe me, but they can't tell me it didn't happen. I lived it. I'm not going to believe them when they tell, if they try to tell me it didn't happen. Really think and remember your story. Get it down. Bring the gospel message into it. How does people get saved? And then we can bring them to all are lost, all have sinned, all are, all are headed to hell. They all, we, we all need Jesus. It's very important for us to be able to share the gospel message with people. And I've told you all, it's so easy to give the gospel message. You can all do it in 30 seconds. We're all sinners. We all deserve hell. Jesus came and died for our sins so that we could be and was resurrected so we can live in victory. And all we have to do is accept that gift. 30 seconds, you can give the gospel. Now, hopefully you can give more than that 30-second gospel message to them. But, you know, people go, well, they didn't have time to tell them. How much more than 30 seconds did you need? Yes, we, then we can go in and say which of the scriptures for it. We can talk about what it means to be a sinner, you know, given enough time. But we need to get bold enough to start giving out the gospel message, sharing what Christ has done. Why did he come to this world was to save us because he knew that we could not save ourselves. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your care. Lord, we ask you to help us always to know that you're in charge, that you're caring for us. Help us to understand what you would want us to do. Give us boldness to share the gospel with others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation.
Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.